0: It's the Marx Brothers Council Podcast, Episode 56, Question Marks. I'm Noah Diamond, and I'm here with the Honorable Pandu of Muftan, Matthew Conium. And I know how Gypsy Rose Leaf is. Well, it's been three years since our last Q&A episode. That was episode 23, Monkey Distance, in April of 2020. And it's been five years since our first Q&A episode. That was episode 8, Gentleman Question Mark, in October of 2018. So we thought maybe it was time for another one, not in the belief that we have more to say, but in the hope that you have forgotten our answers. Um so we ask you to put aside the nude harpo photos for just a just an hour or two while we address some of your comments and concerns and we want to thank you for keeping the show alive long enough to justify another Q&A and at the end of this episode I will provide an update on Patreon patrons the Patreon patron postcard patrol and of course Sammy Patrillo so we asked for yeah. questions and comments for this episode, and you really came through with a beautiful gleaming stack of inquisitive pancakes. And serving those pancakes is the voice you long to
1: hear, the Velvet Fog Bob Gasell. Hello dear. <laughs> Hello, dear Bob. Good to be back. I'm all ready to talk about happening and Castillo. Let's get going. <laughs> Would you be very happy to give us your opinions? No, 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 that's not not gonna happen, <laughs> as Noah said, thanks to everybody for getting these questions in we'll try and read as many as we can if we don't read your question, it's for one of three reasons: one is that we've addressed it at length on another podcast, or we've talked about it at length on the Facebook group, or number three, we just don't get the question, and also, <laughs> I got letters here were like four paragraphs, and there were eight questions in there, so <laughs> I really had to. <laughs> whittle it down but I think I got the best of the best so you guys ready to go let's do it yep oh yeah one last thing you know I asked for recordings of questions but I only got a handful of those so if I mess up pronouncing your name it's your own fault uh, okay so with that in mind let's start right off the bat we got from Kevin Kusinitz from New York City who asks as you watch Harpo's interviews on the Today Show Person to Person and Inside Beverly Hills do you wish that he would knock off the silent stuff and, and just talk?
2: Um, yes, is the it's the short answer. Uh, I mean, not not longingly. I don't, I don't sort of sit there, you know, wishing that he would. But I, I don't really see any strong reason why he wouldn't or shouldn't and it would be obviously much, much more interesting and much more valuable if he did. I think it's odd that he wanted to retain that element of his comic character when he's not playing that comic character. Um, I know he did have this this, this feeling that if, People heard his voice. It with you know, they would they would always hear it, and that would be the end of it. But you know, a lot of these interviews are from when he's more or less retired. Anyway, um, we know as well that he did speak a lot more than than the legend would have us believe. So yeah, it just it does stri- it strikes me as a as a, a a strange tactic, um and maybe not the best one.
0: Yeah, I wish we had at least one. Interview with Harpo, um, in which the real man, more or less, the man we meet when we read his book, uh, answered questions in a serious and straightforward way about his life and art, because um, that would be interesting to hear. Uh, So many of those talk show appearances later on feel, although it's always wonderful to see him and he's always a a magical and entertaining presence, uh, sometimes you do feel like the character he worked so hard to create. I, that character doesn't quite thrive in the context of a TV talk show and obviously was a- almost useless on radio. Um, it would have been nice. I don't know that I, I feel that way about every appearance, and I think retaining the magic of his character also counts for a lot. But I wish we had a little of it. And Harpo seems to have given up his um, character very reluctantly, he, even to the point of often seemingly putting the wig on to take a quick photograph
2: Mm, carrying it with him, presumably at all times, because there are a lot of candids on there, where uh, he he seems to have produced it from a pocket. Um, whether that was, you know, um, adherence to the character or possibly a, a bit of self-consciousness about
1: about his uh, his shiny chromium pate, maybe a bit of both. Yeah, yeah, this brings up the whole question of Harpo and Chico's hesitancy to appear out of character. Really, there aren't many other comics that felt that strongly about it. Chaplin had no problem keeping interviews. Uh, maybe Laurel and Hardy might have been the only ones, similarly, who automatically went in the character.
2: It is interesting, though, isn't it? I mean, there is there is a an analogy to be drawn with um, actors in, in silent movies making the transition to sound. A lot of them were very, very worried because uh, they... Thought that maybe their voice uh, wouldn't conform to how audiences would imagine their voice to be, um, and that, that that they might be
0: their careers might be compromised in that way. Groucho sort of avoided the problem in some ways by kind of merging with his character as he got older, um, adapting his character enough to do the quiz show and play a kind of real-life version of Groucho, a a Groucho that, although still with some distance from the actual private human being, was now this character who you you might see riding a bus or eating in a restaurant, Um, and it wouldn't completely fracture reality the way it would if you saw his early film persona doing that. Harpo and Chico, you know, their characters didn't age with them as gracefully, maybe, as Groucho's did.
1: Okay, so let's move on to our first audio question.
2: Hi there, Noah, Matthew, and Bob. Uh, Fred Sullivan here from Manchester in the UK. I was recently re-listening to the episode you did about the Marx Brothers on TV. Uh, And when you were discussing the holdout, Matthew mentioned that people like to see comedians take on grotesque or tragic roles. That got me thinking. I was wondering if you guys can think of any dramatic or tragic or grotesque roles in film and TV that the brothers could have played. Um, Thanks very much. Hmm.
0: Uh, Well, some things that leap to mind are, you know, that Chico might have been useful in, you know, a mafia drama at some point in the later years. One could imagine that. Groucho's kind of the easiest Marx brother to think about from a casting point of view and and surely later on could have played uh elder statesman roles in in political dramas if it appealed to him and if it were offered.
2: And I think also in the if they'd lived uh well they some of them did live but if they they'd lived at full power into the 1970s. Um the, 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 there was a kind of a revival of of New York based um, drama around that time People like Martin Scorsese things like that sort of thing you could easily imagine them getting a character role in, in uh, something like you know Goodfellas or, or uh, something along those lines um, Luke Costello too
0: cause he, he would have been a natural for, for Scorsese um, Yeah, it's hard to, I mean, I I hear what you're saying about Harpo there, and it made me start thinking of things about, like, but but I can't imagine Harpo in, say, uh, like, Flowers for Algernon or (laughs) Awakenings or something (laughs) like that. Something where um, reluctance to speech has something to do with the tragedy being depicted.
1: Okay, let's move on. Uh, Jeff Bohm asks... If someone released a comprehensive Marx Brothers film set and asked you, our esteem host the podcast, to do feature commentaries, what would be your top three films you'd, you'd like to do?
3: I
2: would like Rune Service and Coconuts because I, I think I would have the most say about those in terms of, you know, run, running counter to, to consensus. And Animal Crackers... Because I'd just love to talk about Animal Crackers. Uh,
0: My answers are very similar. Um, I recall a point you've often made, Matthew, which is that their lesser films are often more interesting to talk about. Um, Nevertheless, um, it's three of my favorites that that made my list, and it's also the first three of their films, Uh, Coconuts, Animal Crackers, and Monkey Business, is where I landed on this. Uh, Coconuts and Animal Crackers are, to me, their most interesting films for reasons we've discussed many times. They're almost documentaries as well as comedies, um, and they uh, tell us so much. Animal Crackers, particularly, is just so dense with material. It's their richest film uh, in terms of content, and there's more to talk about, I think, than there is with any other film. Uh, And then Monkey Business, you know, uh, on this show, when we've discussed Monkey Business... Um, I've realized that you know it is in so many ways it's the it's an anomaly among their films it's you could call it a departure except for the fact that it's kind of their first film and uh, the only thing they're departing from in it is their pre-film career but the films they made after monkey business really went in a different direction in some ways reverting back to animal crackers and uh, so I find a lot to say about that and I, I often hear people that our Monkey Business episode is one that people particularly enjoy. I think for that reason, we stumbled into some things about that film that aren't aren't said very much.
1: Okay, and Jeff Bohm actually has another question, and this one's directed to Noah. Is there any Tootsie Fruitsie ice cream chance in hell that we might someday see a video recording of your i stage show?
0: Well, the general answer to that is yes. Uh, in that having a definitive version of I'll Say She Is on film publicly available is very much in the long-term thinking and, you know, on my wish list for I'll Say She Is. Um, But as far as a video of the 2016 production at the Connolly Theatre, although a pretty generous uh, 17-minute highlights reel from that production can be found on YouTube and there's clips from it, in some of the pieces that I produced for Fredonia Marksonia and elsewhere, Uh, the full video of that production won't be released. And um, although I really don't like the feeling that I'm withholding it from people who would really like to see it, the reason, the reason for this is that the video, uh, we filmed a few performances of, of that production Um, They were filmed by a very good videographer named Jonathan McDevitt. He filmed a few performances from a few different angles, and using that material, we were able to create the highlights reel and and occasionally are able to show a little bit of it. But you just have to believe me when I say that the whole show in that form, it just isn't exactly what you want. It doesn't quite do it justice. Um, It was a wonderful production, and it's a wonderful video uh, with soundboard audio. But it's not quite the professionally produced pro shoot of a stage production um, that we think we can see when we close our eyes. And because I'll Say She Is is not available in any other form at this point, if we were to release that entire video from the Connolly tomorrow, that would be I'll Say She Is. You know, that video would be I'll Say She Is for many more people than ever got to see it um, at the Connolly or in the Fringe Festival, and probably pretty soon for more people than ever got to see it at the casino or on tour in the 20s. Um, And I just feel protective of the property in a way that says when it's available on video for everyone to enjoy. I just want that to be the best and most definitive is it can possibly be. So bear with me, you know. I I don't know uh, (laughs) one day if it'll be like a film A film of a stage production or a film adaptation of the show or some hybrid of of both of those things. Um, I really do want to do that, but um, um, I want to do it as well as possible.
2: If I was playing devil's advocate, i mean i know what a lot of people are, are thinking they're thinking well c- coconuts is all we've got of the coconuts and it was probably a hundred times better on stage uh, and you're probably you know the the worst possible person to uh, yeah. to have a to ha- you know to have a, an objective take on this and yeah groucho
0: didn't want coconuts out either yeah <laughs> yeah that, that's all true I mean, I'm really sympathetic to this. Of course, more than anything, I'm a fan. And if I weren't the guy who who did the I'll Say She is revival, I'd be breathing down the neck of the guy who did and saying, oh, let us see a video. I mean, I've tried to walk a kind of middle ground here and and make a lot of it available. I mean, there is a, a good chunk of it on, on YouTube and, and at the recently revamped I'll Say she Um, You know, I, like I, I've tried not to be completely withholding. Uh, but it's true. I mean, if uh, if yeah, that's an interesting comparison. Come on, coconut. Noah. If somebody
1: came to you with enough uh, money, you'd be forking that over in a second. If somebody came <laughs> to me with enough money, we'd be doing the show again and filming it really properly. You know what's going to happen? In like 100 years, some Marx Brothers fan is going to be digging and come across your Alsatia's video and think it's the real deal.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, in 100 years, if we haven't managed to make a more definitive version of ava- available, then then, that, then we deserve whatever we get, you know. And, and uh, actually, the truth is, even in, like, five years, if, if we manage to do that, yeah. to make a really good version of I'll Say She Is Available on video, then I would feel very differently about the Off-Broadway 2016 video. Sure, let's let people see what the show was, looked like at that point. It's really not the show itself. I want to be clear about that, too. It's not that the production is disappointing or that anybody's performances or anybody's work in it um, would be disappointing. It's the video itself. It's the capture of the event in the theater. And, you know, uh, if you've ever done any theater and seen it on video or if you just spend some time on YouTube looking at, you know, bootlegs or kind of semi-pro shots of stage productions... You know, it's very hard to make that kind of thing work. What what is magical and vital in the theater just becomes very flat on video. And we don't realize how much we rely, even when watching a pro shoot of a stage show, how much we rely on the vocabulary of filmmaking to put the experience across.
1: I think we need to get Cinco and the Schmigadoon crew over there and Uh, let him put something together. Absolutely.
0: Uh, And uh, listeners, if you're not watching Schmigadoon by a council member and podcast guest and our friend Cinco Paul, uh, hasten
1: to it. Next, we have a question from Victor Guerrero. He asks, what countries did the Marx Brothers visit apart from the United States? Well, they didn't visit the United States. But anyhow, um, I mean, not only vaudeville tours, like the London tour of 1922 or the famous Harpo Soviet tour, but other places they went as performers or simply to enjoy themselves. Well, I'm particularly interested in the two trips
0: to Germany. Um, When Groucho and Chico were very young, when they were very small children, many took them on a trip to Germany to visit her uh the village of Dornham where, where she was from and those memories really stayed with Groucho he remembered specifically visiting the grave of his great-grandmother uh, uh, Fanny uh, Schoenberg's mother and that trip made an impression on Groucho and then much later in 1958 there's another trip to Germany um Robert Dwan uh, worked on You Bet Your Life in his book, As Long As They're Laughing. He talks about this trip in some detail, visiting Germany with Groucho, Melinda, Eden, um, and, and also Robert Dwan's daughter, uh, Judy. Um, it's a really interesting story. They, they go there. He writes about Groucho talking in German to all of these locals, um, the people running an inn where they stop for a meal, who don't really know who Groucho is. They don't know the Marx brothers and Groucho tries in German to convey to them who the Marx brothers were, and as Duan describes it, they are all very charmed by Groucho. He gets a lot of laughs from them, you know, in German, but they they are unaware of his celebrity and status. Um, he rains down coins on a group of German children, you know, much as Uncle Al had uh, with the young Marx brothers in New York, and that's also the trip. Um, where Groucho was saddened to discover no trace of his family. I mean, these these two trips to Germany, You know, one is before the world wars and one is after them. Um, and there was nothing, he couldn't even find the grave of his great grandmother that he remembered seeing as a child um, or any record of Minnie or her family, anywhere in the village's official records. And that is also the trip where Groucho famously danced on Hitler's grave. Um, You've probably heard that story. Dwan tells it very well in his book. Um, When we say danced on Hitler's grave, Groucho uh, hired a limousine and asked to be taken to the location of Hitler's bunker, which at that point had been reduced to rubble by the Soviets after the war and was essentially left untouched remarkably until into the 1980s before they started to excavate that site and clean it up. But that is thought to be the resting place of Adolf Hitler. And Groucho climbed up to the top of a 20-foot pile of rubble and for about two minutes, according to Robert Dwan, uh, danced an energetic, unsmiling Charleston on Hitler's grave. I wonder if he did the corkscrew. (laughs) Don't you wish? Yeah, you know, I mean, just the fact that Groucho danced on Hitler's grave is a sentence we can... Butter and it's reasonably accurate. Um, <laughs> you know, that's really something.
1: I'm sort of keen personally to learn about Chico's trip to France and how he ended up in the roller derby. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, Chico might have been the most traveled, right? He went to Australia too on tour
1: at one point. Mm. Um, Peter Haskell writes, Would it be better to live in Fredonia or Sylvania? What do you think, guys?
2: On well, the face of it, not much to choose. They're both Tyrannies, they're both belligerents. Um, however, I think, um, although it is true that Firefly begins his reign by announcing a series of irrational, draconian laws, um, we don't get the feeling thereafter that he's much concerned with governance per se. Uh, so I would imagine that the, the, the average Fredonian citizen, while they wouldn't get much assistance, probably wouldn't get much. Obstruction. Uh, Trentino, on the other hand, seems much more serious and much more efficient and probably more likely to terrorize his own people. Um, as a strategist, I think Firefly is underrated. His war is defensive and preemptive. Sylvania really is planning an invasion. Um, and also, after a, a, a short burst of carnage, uh, he settles it the way. All wars should be settled, which is by having the leaders throw things at each other until
0: one of them cries uncle. So I, I vote for Fredonia. I can't
1: improve upon that. I, I'll be in Fredonia with Matthew. <laughs> hmm. So let me ask this. At the end of Duck Soup, what happens? Does Trentino go back and just continue ruling Slovenia or has, has Firefly taken that over as well? Well, where, where do we stand politically at the end of Duck Soup? <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I presume. Yeah, Firefly presumably, if we don't have, we'll we'll uh, sort of at least run it as a kind of a proxy uh, territory, <laughs> a colonial territory. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, Firefly says uh, that this will go on until the fruit runs out, right? So at some point that <laughs> that happens, they run out of fruit. They have so they either have to start throwing other things at Trentino, or maybe in a truer to the spirit of things, they. You know, they're out of fruit now, so they let him out of that wooden, uh, that makeshift uh, uh, (laughs) block that he's shackled in. And and maybe they all just uh, go out for dinner, you know.
1: And stick Mrs. Teasdale with the check. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, next we have another audio question. This one's from our good friend, uh, Vico Savanto. Hi there. Uh, This is Vico Savanto your long-time Finnish listener, coming to you from my place of residence in Gdansk, Poland. Uh, Since uh, this year, 10 years have passed from the founding of the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group, I thought I'd ask what you consider to be the most important Marx-related change that has occurred in those uh, 10 years. Uh, Something that you'd be really surprised to hear if you were to go back in time and tell it to your 2013 self. Uh, this can be something personal, like a change in your uh, estimation of the Marx brothers or something related to them, or it can be something more general, like, say, a new discovery. Thank you. Uh, Seeing
0: Harpo's dick? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I mean, personally, I, I apologize for how uh, self centered this answer might sound, but uh, to me, the time that the Marx Brothers Council Facebook group has existed, it's corresponded with the years that I sort of went from being, you know, a a Marx Brothers fan um, and an artist in other areas to, you know, dealing with the Marx Brothers more and more in my writing and work and publicly. And, oh, here's a good way to illustrate this. I was recently cleaning out old files on my computer and I found a screen grab from, I think it was from 2013 or 2014. Uh, and it was, a, I had screen grabbed uh, um, a Facebook notification that said, Joe Adamson liked your comment because it was just such a through the looking glass, you know, dream come true moment for me. I couldn't believe Joe Adamson, this name that I've known and this book that I've worshipped yeah. since early childhood. <laughs> He liked my comment, and it, that was a notable enough— You're not the only one. I bet, I bet you many
1: council members felt the same way.
0: Yeah, and and it, it, it meant that much to me that I took a picture of it and, and saved it. Um, and, you know, since then, I, I also can't believe it's true, but, you know, I've had many friendly conversations with Joe, and he participated in one of my Fredonia pieces. We've interviewed him on this podcast— If I had a question for Joe Adamson now, I would uh, just send him a note and ask him. And um, so that's what's changed. I feel like in some sense, in the time since Matthew's project of the Marx Brothers Council has been a reality, I feel like I've sort of joined the Marx Brothers.
2: Yeah, and I think in, a, in a, the, same, the same basic point, but, but more generally, I, th- I think that those years have marked a time when um, a kind of a, sing- a single worldwide community has been made of, you know, what had hitherto been, partly for technical reasons, obviously, because social media has revolutionized this, um, uh, you know, a, a kind of a more disparate uh, series of smaller conglomerations. We, we're kind of all in one big
1: pot now, which is lovely. Okay, this next question comes from Flip Lauer, who is the grand chief of the big business tent of Cleveland. So. Hey. <laughs> Flip asks, Laurel and Hardy had at least two theme songs. Which ones do you associate most with the Marx Brothers as a team? Collegian makes the most sense for Harpo, and Hooray for Kevin Spaulding, obviously for Groucho. But is there anything for the team that you would choose as a theme song? Oh, four of the Three Musketeers is the
0: obvious answer, I think. That sort of is the theme song for the Marx Brothers, the only problem being that very few people have heard it, uh, because it's not in any film, and the Marx Brothers never recorded it. Um, But you know, it's important enough that uh, it became the title of, of Robert Bader's landmark book about them. And that really is a song that is all but says, Hi, we're the Marx Brothers, you know, we're here to make you laugh. I think um, Fidona's Going to War is is the only song
2: that that, that all four of them contribute I mean sort of semi-contribute in Harpo's case obviously but um, apart from Sweet Adeline of course so you're you're not spoiled for choice with regards to actual songs in terms of pieces of music I think although obviously I have a tremendous affinity with the the opening music of of Animal Crackers um, I think that the the Marx theme that most says to me here are the Marx Brothers is Horse
0: Feathers the version of Chico's uh, I'm Daffy over you that is kind of
1: threaded through
0: uh, I'm Against It I think in in the opening credits
1: Mm -hmm. so our next question comes from Rich Lewin who asks what can you tell us about the Marx Brothers' pets? I've heard it mentioned that Harpo loved and owned many dogs. I read in Adamson of Zippo importing Afghan hounds from Britain and owning a horse ranch. I've seen pictures of Groucho in front of a fridge with his cat, Blackie. Also, there's a dog of Groucho's named Duke mentioned in a letter to Miriam. Chico, I guess he liked to just watch horses running around in a big circle. <laughs> <laughs>
2: The only other thing I can think of is, is in, um, I seem to remember in, in Harpo Speaks, doesn't he say that they, they adopted um, a seagull that couldn't fly uh, and, and, call, and called it seagull, S-I-E-G-E-L, which is very good.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think Groucho uh, at some point in the later years also had a dog named Chico. I seem to recall reading that somewhere. Uh, We also do know that Chico, um, I mean, I appreciate the horse racing joke, but Chico actually was very interested in animals. We've come across that tidbit that he really liked to read about wild animals and there's that story about the photo shoot at the zoo in London, I believe, where Chico was Mm. very keen to talk to the zoologists there and and had all these questions about animals. Um, And Although it departs slightly from the subject of pets, this question um, makes me reflect on how important animals are in the Marx Brothers' work. You know, um, I mean, we we could spend an entire episode listing the ways in which animals figure both in the stories of the films as characters or as, you know, the subject of jokes. Animals are often invoked one way or another in the titles of the Marx Brothers' films, and uh, maybe there's a a reason for this there's you know one thing about animals is that they are completely uninhibited you know animals are are unself-conscious in a way, and maybe there's some connection to be made between we, we like to talk about the Marx brothers sometimes as an expression of unbridled id you know um people behaving as they would behave if societal constraints didn't keep them well behaved. And you know, when you watch animals behave, it is in a way, it's a version of that completely instinctive behavior. Um, And maybe that's why there seems to be this affinity between the Marx Brothers and animals. Uh, It seems to me, um, this is a we could we could get a whole episode out of this topic one day. So so I'll stop talking about it now. Uh, But it's an interesting (laughs) one, the Marx Brothers and animals, there's a lot to it.
1: This next one comes from Arnie Bernstein, who I recently learned went not only to the same college I did, uh, Southern Illinois University, but lived on the same street. So maybe he's the one who stole my stereo equipment, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, that's that's a topic for another <laughs> for another uh, show. Anyhow, Arnie asked, and I'm condensing this down a bit because he wrote quite a lengthy uh, diatribe here. But uh, let me read this. As we all know, the Chicago Seven conspiracy trial was something of a Marx Brothers movie come to life, with Abby Hoffman as Groucho, his co-defendants as lots of Chicos because they needed the money, Harpos and a few Zeppos. Judge Julius Hoffman was played by Sig Ruman. Uh, the boys were supported by a crazy cast of witnesses, including Norman Mailer, Judy Collins, who sang her testimony, and self-proclaimed co-acid tripper with Groucho, Paul Krasner, who incidentally was tripping on LSD during his own testimony. But beyond the defendants turning the trial into a reenactment of the Duck Soup trial scene, Groucho does enter the story. Hoffman and Jerry Rubin wanted Groucho to actually testify as an expert witness on American satire, a tradition of which the defendants claimed they were part. Do you have any more info on this or thoughts? Not info. Uh, and I wasn't aware of this until, and I I
0: guess I'm revealing I, this question I, I have seen in advance. Um, Arnie uh, sent us a, a link to an article about this, and that led me down a little bit of a research rabbit hole. And yeah, it's very interesting. It also reminded me that I had heard some other connection between Groucho and the Chicago 7. I couldn't remember what it was. And then I found it in your book, Matthew, That's Me, Groucho, Um, you quote, the great Louis J. Stadlin, um, as having said at some point that Groucho had been approached about playing the judge, Julius Hoffman, uh, named Julius, coincidentally, in a a film based on the trial of the Chicago seven, uh, not the recent film by Aaron Sorkin, obviously, but a a much earlier one, Uh, that there's an interesting dramatic role, I suppose, Groucho might have taken. Uh, I'm. Not, I don't know that he would have been uh, well cast in that role, but um, but interesting. I I think um, it, when when we are hearing about the sort of anti-establishment bona fides of the Marx Brothers, you know, particularly um, in in this Vietnam period, uh, often the examples that are cited don't quite seem to make the point. Um, I always. <laughs> I have to confess, I always cringe a little bit when Groucho's remark about uh, Nixon being assassinated is is celebrated as an example of why he was such a great thumber of the nose at authority. You know, um, I mean, <laughs> I, we don't have to come down too hard on him for that, but you know, uh, and and no love lost for Nixon, of course. But come on, you don't publicly advocate for for anyone to be <laughs> murdered, you know. Um, and it's not a particularly funny remark either, which would have possibly redeemed it. I think this is the fact that is much more interesting and much more worth citing if we want to draw a connection between uh, Marxian comedy and um, and the protest movement of the 1960s, you know, uh, that Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin thought that Groucho Marx would be a great expert witness uh, at the trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, that places Groucho right in the heart of the way uh, the leaders of that attempted revolutionary movement were thinking about themselves, and um, and seems much more deserving of our attention. Okay. And Arnie, give Bob back his stereo equipment, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: The only thing that was left was uh, the speaker wire.
2: Okay. Um. <laughs> uh, that sounds like him. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Okay, next we have another audio question, um, the one we've been looking forward to or fearing. <laughs> Hello, gentlemen, question mark
0: of the council. This is Fred Velez from Redline, Pennsylvania. And my question is, what are your thoughts on the recently turned up nude photos of Harpo Marx? And should we get our tickets early, waiting for your naked reply, if we can bear it? Swordfish. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I wasn't
2: surprised. It's, it seems very much, you know, in, in keeping with... I mean, I, I guess I was maybe surprised that they just suddenly appeared.
1: Hey, maybe we better give a little background for uh, those people who might not know what we're talking about. Well,
0: these are two uh, nude photos of Harpo, uh, one of which I think we could call a full frontal nude of Harpo. And they were taken on the set of Horse Feathers very clearly. It's obviously the set of Horse Feathers, and you can see some of Harpo's Horse Feathers costume in the pictures. Uh, They were reportedly uh, given by Harpo to the assistant director, uh, Charles Barton, assistant director of Horse Feathers, who later went on to direct some important comedies. And uh, yeah, I too have known about them for a while. I've heard people um, a little closer to the source talk about having seen them. Um, But just recently, they appeared at one of the online auction houses, um, Julian's, and um, I would recommend Robert Whitey's essay about this particular auctioneer, um, if if you want to know what's going on there. But uh, the main event, I suppose, is the fact that they were up for auction. But really, for our purposes, what's important is that they were released on the Internet and have now been seen by uh, all or by many of the fans. I think it's kind of wonderful that these pictures are out there. Um, I I think... Now, not, not so much the fact that they're being sold at auction, um, you know, that, and that's a, a separate thing, but the main event of, like, the fans getting access to them and seeing them, it kind of makes me say, why not, you know? Um, first of all, They're completely innocent photos. I mean, there's really nothing to object to about them. They're really not sexual or dirty in any way, I I don't think. I think, you know, yes, in one of them you can see uh, Harpo's, um, I'm going to say, gookie. But it's not like... (laughs) I I can't really imagine anyone being really offended by the content of those photos unless they're just offended by the, the facts of human anatomy, in which case, you know... It's the 20th, 21st
1: century, you know. Um, it's time to get over that a little bit. And we have to remember that Harpo willingly posed for these. It's not like there were some candid shots taken without his knowledge. Yes, and, and that this exhibitionistic
0: streak that all the Marx brothers had, and, and Harpo more than any of them, you know, this this is well known. I, I think it's sort of nice that it, here it is 90 years later, Later, and uh, the Marx Brothers uh, can still kind of surprise us a little bit, you know. It's like we're we're (laughs) all friends um, of Wilcotts. We're hanging out on uh, Nesheby Island uh, playing croquet, and Harpo just jumped out from behind a bush (laughs) and exposed himself to us, which (laughs) is what we know he would have done. So, so I kind of think it's great. Uh, Now, I will say these are my opinions. If any of Harpo's adult children. You know, were to express um, displeasure with the photos being made public, then obviously their feelings about it would carry more weight than anyone's, and and um, that would that might make me temper my feelings about it a little bit. But um, they seem to have more of a problem with his voice coming out than <laughs> <you>. <laughs> yeah, because Harpo consistently chose to hide his voice and reveal his penis.
1: <laughs> it's interesting because they come from a familiar. Horse Feather's photo shoot, we know the photos that were taken like right before this. That's right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, on that little sofa. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? In the, the home movies, um, much more so in in the ones that were, were shown like, but also in the ones that are on the, the DVD, the TV DVD, there's, uh, if you've got your your freeze-frame button-ready, there's a, there's a fairly clear side view, isn't there, of, of, uh, oh, of yeah. the Harbo manhood. So oh, I, think, yeah. I think we were, you know, we were kind of primed, but, but all the same, I think just the suddenness with which they appeared on the internet,
1: it certainly uh, took the colour out of my face. <laughs> oh, is that what happened? <laughs> so did either of you uh, show them to your woman and say, hey, honey, come take a look at this? Or how do you, how do you handle that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, one thing that I, I'll say is that this is one of
0: those times when it's kind of broken out of just Marx Brothers fan circles. I mean, people in my life who are not uh, obsessed with the Marx Brothers have said to me in recent weeks, "Hey, what do you think about these Harpo pictures? Do you hear about the Harpo pictures?" Uh, so you know, it's more, more. Uh, this is this. Maybe this will be the thing that breaks through and finally get, puts the Marx Brothers back in the center of popular culture. <laughs>
2: And instantly, um, a couple of people have, uh, have asked on a, um, in, in the council if I was, if I was uh, making some obscure joke or whatever, when I said that there, are, there, there is also a Groucho equivalent. Uh, no, no, I wasn't. There is a Groucho equivalent, and unfortunately, that's, that's all I can say. But who knows? Maybe, maybe one day you will
1: see that. too. Uh, that, I'm, I must admit, I don't know anything about. Okay. Matt Andrews from Cardiff, Wales. What's Cardiff, Wales? Not if there's a place in Wales. <laughs> okay. By the way, where are all the women? Maybe the, these Harpo pictures scared all the ladies off because we just got questions from guys here. <laughs> but uh, Matt Andrews asks, who's the most consistently funny Marx Brother across their 13 films? Not the funniest, but the most consistently funny. Uh, 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 mm-hmm. None of them really, uh, because they all they
2: they all significantly deteriorate at around the same time. Um, although Chico does almost literally nothing funny at all in the later films, he probably is the one that is least um, difficult to to reconcile everything that's interesting about the earlier chico is is planed away, but it's not it's not the same thing as the Bazel Groucho or the love Happy Harpo in terms of decline so
0: maybe chico in a in a odd sort of way, yeah, I could see that I could imagine an argument for any of them i I think Harpo is kind of the instinctive the answer that comes to my mind first anyway on the basis of the fact that. Often in their weaker films, Harpo is still very, very funny. Uh, But then it occurs to me that when Harpo isn't funny, it doesn't land with a thud the way a a verbal joke that doesn't make you laugh just kind of hangs there in silence. Um, And so maybe Harpo has an easier time of it in in some ways. Um, It's interesting, too, that... It's hard for me to. I can't think of very many moments where I respond to the films, even the weaker films, by th- saying like, "Oh, well, they aren't funny here," you know. I'd be much more inclined to say the material isn't funny, or they they were m- misguided by producers or directors. Um, even even at their worst, they seem
1: perfectly capable of being funny. Okay, Scott and I asks. As published authors of March Brothers books, I'm curious about if the sales of your books met with your expectations. Actual sales figures are none of my business, but I'd like to know if you were pleased or disappointed. Um, I'm going to guess that Matthew's first book did well enough to warrant putting out a second. But how did that one perform? And Noah, you only wrote one book, but I wonder, is there a second one that you're thinking about? Well, I'll start then by saying that this, this firstly, this is this is...
2: Strictly relative, we're talking about the kind of sales that a book about the Marx Brothers from a a small academic press, um, you know, in in its wildest dreams uh, is not going to be, you know, a Harry Potter (laughs) kind of um, uh, reach. Um, I will say that on those strictly very, 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 very small terms, um, my first one did... Do satisfyingly well and is still um, providing me with with uh, with with a check um, a couple of times a year. Um, and my editor, who's now sadly left the company, uh, used to give me regular kind of feedback reports on how well it was doing. Uh, and and he, according to him, it was uh, doing you know unusually well for a book of its type for a book of its age um none of the others really did much of anything including the groucho um
0: i i I doubt they've even sold out their first
2: printing yet
0: i would i would think that the annotated marx brothers would be you know uh, relative to these other books a big seller it is the closest um of, uh, any of the, the, let's say the three books that Matthew and I have written about the Marx Brothers between us, it's certainly the the closest to being a general interest kind of take on the Marx Brothers, uh, even though it's so full of, of specifics, um, you know, compared to a book about the Marx Brothers films, a book about their little known first Broadway show is like a niche topic within a niche topic within a niche topic, Mm -hmm. um, Give me a thrill um, it's it's it sells uh, 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 roughly eighty to a hundred uh, hard copies a year these days it was a little bit more in, when it was first published about eighty to a hundred hard copies and about forty or fifty ebooks every year um, and on one hand those are fairly small numbers in the world of publishing uh, but to me fairly overwhelming. I mean, I just uh, can't wipe the smile off my face. I think that, you know, something like 120 150 people a year, acquire and perhaps even read the book. um, You know, that's, that's so amazing to me, a lot of it is made possible by these small publishers, as Matthew was saying, you know, publishers who are able to put books out that that do cater to niche interests. For a little bit of perspective i I did some math on this, and um, in order to you know quit my day job um, i'd have to write approximately another one hundred and forty books that sell at the same level <laughs> um, <laughs> and, if, if they were published in the same way and and again, you know, thank God for Bear Manor and McFarlane and other publishers like them um, I do have um, other ideas for marx brothers books um, and i have i've written two other books that are not about the Marx Brothers, and Matthew, I think there are six or seven uh, non-Marx books in his uh, catalog. Um, I I know of certainly of three Marx Brothers books that I, that I want to write, um, two of which are partially written, and one of which was rejected by a major publisher just recently, uh, just um, a couple of months ago. That's a, a book that deals with a specific part of the later Groucho career. Um, and there's a couple others. Yeah, I hopefully those will all get written. Um, but, you know, um, one of the things about these publishers is um, you have to really want the book to exist. You have to write it. You generally aren't getting paid to write the book. You're getting a percentage of its sales after it's written. Um, and some of the Marx Brothers things that I would really like to write are the kind of things that would require, you know, an advance and a sabbatical, and it would really have to be my job for a little while to write those books. But uh, hope springs
1: eternal. Matthew, how about you? Any Marx books you'd like to do if uh, money wasn't an issue and you knew it would get published?
3: Not really,
1: not
2: particularly. Well, I mean, what I really want to do is, is, is revise the first one. I've already got, uh, you know, literally thousands of Uh, extra things, uh, corrections, um, shifting of of emphases, updating certain things. Um, You know, it it could really do with with an overhaul. Um, So that would be, if if somebody said, you know, you can do any Marx project you like, I think that would be the the first thing, would be a second edition, which would be about two and a half times the size of of the
1: first. Hmm. And what color would that cover be? Uh,
2: That would be puce. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Uh,
0: there, there is a, um, a forthcoming uh, expanded version of "Give Me a Thrill" too, um, that um, I'm hoping will be uh, in your hands next year. The the available version of "Give Me a Thrill" is current through uh, the 2014 production of Alsatia's at the Fringe Festival, but it actually doesn't cover the um, the 2016 Off Broadway production because uh, we wanted it to be out in time to sell it in the lobby of that production. Uh, so that will be, like, a, give me a thrill with a uh, a longish new chapter about the 2016 production. Um, that's in the works.
1: Okay, well, we got another audio question here. Uh, you know, I wanted people to identify themselves, but this person didn't want to. But it was a good question, so I'll, I'll just uh, play it anyhow. Okay?
0: Hi, this is me. I'm not going to tell you who I am. You can refer to me as my <laughs> rap name. The Notorious Eddie D. Now, my question is about Groucho. In Horse Feathers, he plays the guitar, and he seems to be pretty proficient. He sings everyone, says I love you, to Thelma Todd. It's a real brief snippet, but he seems to be proficient. Did he ever use the guitar in his act, or did he ever think of bringing it into the act, or was, did they think that Chico's piano and Harpo's harp was too much? With that, it would be too much of a good thing. Okay, have a great day. Bye, all my fellow Marx Brothers fans. <laughs> Boy, he sounds different in lowercase, doesn't he? <laughs> it does seem like uh, the Groucho was he, was, he was not unwilling to play the guitar sometimes, and we know the examples when he does in the films, but he, he didn't seem to want to make it as a, a part of his thing as much as instrumentals were for Harpo and Chico.
2: Which is interesting, actually, isn't it? Because given the, the, you know, the, the, the nature of their relationship, um, it would have been easy to imagine him saying, well, you know, they've got an instrument, so I should have one as well. I think, by and large, he, he really wasn't keen on, on, on the musical interludes at all was he? I mean, uh, the, the uh, you know, go out in the lobby while this thing blows over is, you know, apparently um, kind of what, what he
1: felt about the, the harp and the piano. Um, I think he just didn't think it fit his character. You know, he was able to get away with it th- and Horse Feathers because he could, you know, throw it in the lake and, you know, take the hmm. stuff out of it right away. But it was, I think it's just too sincere for for his character. It
2: is literally just the, the three times, isn't it? It's in on the lake in Horse yeah. Feathers. It's the, the very brief bit of frantic strumming he does in monkey business and then he, right. he does a little bit in girl in every port i think that's, that's and it go
1: west it? and riding the range he plays
2: oh guitar. of course riding the range yes yes yes
1: you have to realize noah that matthew and i have blacked go west out of our yeah. consciousness <laughs> maybe someday you'll get there <laughs> i'm looking forward to that uh, i just have to
0: go a year without some specific need to watch go west in order to talk about it it's uh, a really good point bob i think you're right. Uh, it it doesn't quite fit his character and also i think singing was important to his character in a way that it wasn't with the other brothers and maybe and groucho liked to think of himself as a singer and you know his vocal stylings were a big part of his self image as a performer and maybe he just felt that was his musical contribution
1: i guess i got to play devil's advocate to myself because if harpo had a different name and never played the harp you would never in a million years think that the harp was the appropriate instrument for him. So I guess it's just our, our preconceptions.
2: And also, I guess, just visually, you know, a harp and a piano are large instruments that you go to and use and then you walk away. Whereas a guitar, you, you kind of have to have, you carry it with you,
1: which, which would be very strange for his character. Yeah, harpo and his large instrument. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's move on to our uh, final question. It comes from John J. McKinney. He says, Do you believe that Harpo and Groucho really understood how great they were? I am befuddled why Harpo and Groucho didn't insist on better post-room service material. I can't get myself to believe that they just didn't care. I'm flummoxed why Groucho in the 40s wanted to break up an act in which he was the star in order to play second banana to Frank Sinatra. I get that getting older, been doing it for decades, only doing it for Chico's paydays stuff. But gee, Harpo still had the ambition to do basically a solo movie in 1949. Did they just not get it? Do we really care about the Marxists more than they did?
2: The first important point to make about that is that he didn't break up the act in order to play Second Banana to 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 Frank Sinatra. He broke up the act in order to become a hugely successful solo comedian, and it it just didn't happen. Which is why you know Night and Casablanca did eventually. Um, so I think he was he spent most of the of the forties profoundly disappointed that he was unable to become. The star that he imagined he would either in movies or on radio. He was this, this perpetual guest star on other people's uh, shows. So I think if he, was, if it was somehow possible for him to to see the next five or six years in 1941, I suspect he probably would have been less willing uh, to break up the act. But but that that that's why I think is because. Um, if you look at how long his career was, and when it started, the Marx Brothers was really only a, a small chunk of that. He started as a solo, uh, and, and I think he he still basically thought of himself as as a solo. He was kind of guesting in this in this family uh, brother act, um, and and it, it it was never I had, I think part of his
0: his permanent sense of who he was as a performer. I think something you almost never hear a Marx brother say, or really maybe any classic comedian say, is is any variation on, oh, that was really good, but it wasn't a hit. Like, that was great work. That was really funny, but the audience didn't laugh at it. You know, to those guys, if the audience didn't laugh, that means it wasn't funny. If it wasn't a hit, that means it wasn't good. Um, and it's not until pretty deep into the post-war years that I think you get comedians really thinking of themselves and talking about themselves publicly as artists uh, who who might hold those kinds of opinions you know oh I'm casting pearls over the heads of swine you know that was my best work it's too bad they, they didn't understand it you know um, and as the as we've documented on this podcast a lot, as the films as as the uh, particularly as we get deeper into the 1940s, the Marx Brothers' style becomes much less consistent with what is currently popular. Um, I don't think they felt like, uh, oh, if we could make another movie like Horse Feathers, that would be great. Uh, I think they felt like if we made another movie like Horse Feathers, that would be a death blow. That would mean we've got nothing left to say. And um, we've talked about how in some of the later films, they seem to be trying, often with not great results, to fit what they do into
1: what was happening in comedy at the time. Oh, I just realized I have another question here from Jed Becker that I wanted to get in. Um, He says, Hello, Noah, Bob, and Matthew. I'll omit the body of the letter and put it in a windshield wiper instead. My question is, can you explain that joke to me? The the, the windshield wiper joke. Um,
2: I think it's fair to say that in the version of that scene that we've got, which is the, uh, the, the film of Animal Crackers, it means absolutely nothing at all and, and it is all the funnier for it. Uh, however, um, if we go to the version of the play script we find that there are no uh, hunger-mongers. Uh, instead, the the letter is addressed to the Honourable Charles D. Wasserschlügel, care of Wasserschlegel Wasserschlügel, Wasserschlügel and McCormick. Um, I don't think that those names were intended to mean anything. I think they were just funny, Germanic-sounding names. But, of course, Groucho, who could speak German... Um, would have instantly clocked that, that Wasser Schlegel translates as something like water mallet, water hammer, something along those lines. And that probably uh, would have just put the idea in his mind, which then came out as the winch of weapon, which I suspect is something that, that there seems to be quite a bit of in Animal Crackers, which is retained ad-libs. Our kind of uh, resident council linguist, Pico Suvanto, um, very kindly um, pointed me towards an example of an actual Vasserschlägel. There is, there is a thing called a Vasserschlägel uh, it, it, and it, it is contemporary to the joke. Uh, needless to say, it's not a windshield wiper uh it's it's a kind of a a a wooden device uh used in agriculture to to regulate uh the flow of water in in irrigation systems so that's that's probably a coincidence but but almost certainly Groucho would have would have heard the name wasser uh that would have put in his mind the idea of a of a water uh implement um and uh, which which then sort of came out as as uh, windshield wiper obviously it's not actually a joke as such because they're not expecting the audience to be able to to speak german and, and even if they could it's it's still it's still uh not a joke i mean the joke obviously is that that he's saying to remove um a, a piece of grammar and to replace it with a, a physical object that's as far as you need uh, and obviously winchell wiper is funny uh, and obviously that must have got a huge laugh and that's why it was it was kept even when 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 the names changed but i'm i'm guessing that that's how it came about through an association of ideas back when uh instead of Hungerdungers uh
1: there was a Wasser schlegel that's a that's a remarkable connection it really is now i have a totally different take okay when you're shopping for a car you're buying a new car you're negotiating with the salesman you're like okay i want a sunroof i want a stereo and they Uh say no it costs this much that much okay take that out put in the leather seats instead you know it's just part of that whole negotiation with with buying a new car and i I just think it's a play on that but i do have to admit your your theory is a lot more interesting (laughs) Does hunger
0: Dunga mean anything in German, and and does it have anything to do with Harpo's uh, exposed?
1: <laughs> uh. <laughs> Is that what we're going to call it now, the hunger Dunga photo? His water mallet. <laughs> 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 Papa <Up> is Schlegel
0: <laughs> <laughs> I always think it must have been tough, like I wonder if if Vassar Schlegel and company were replaced by the hungungas you know during the stage run or or when exactly that happened because um, it seems pretty tough like if, if you imagine Groucho doing that scene and having to quickly reel mm. off those names a bunch of times, you know Vassar Schlegel Vassar Schlugel Schlegel, Vassar Schlegel. Uh, uh, mm. that's, that's rough going. Uh, that's hard on the tongue. Maybe there was a real life Vasserschlegel that uh, objected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, the the <laughs> tiny town of Vasserschlegel, New York, the mayor threatened
1: to. <laughs> okay, so that's it for the questions. Uh, Noah,
0: back to you. Well, we thank you for your questions and, as always, for your attention. Before we wrap this up and move on with our lives, I'll give you a brief update on the situation on Patreon. By the time this episode reaches your ears, postcard number four should be in the hands of all of our Patreon subscribers at the Students of Huxley Left-Handed Moths and Fireflies Cabinet Levels. And at the time of this recording, I know that some have just received it and uh, the advance notices have been very positive and kind. Uh, I also wanna say that next month's postcard, number five in May, is uh, a real treat. Uh, it's a beautiful design by a great artist whose work will be familiar to many of you, Mr. Jim Engel. Um, so that is really something to look forward to in May. And I also wanna clarify, um, in terms of getting these postcards, Every month when the new postcards arrive from the printer, I quickly uh, uh, address them and stamp them and send them to all of our patrons at those three subscription levels. But anyone who subscribes at one of those levels in the course of the next month, before the next postcard comes out, I put a postcard, the most recent card, in the mail to them as soon as their subscription comes in. So, if you're hearing um, all the excited buzz from people who have gotten their postcards and you're not yet a subscriber, don't think it's too late. Uh, while supplies last, I keep sending them out to new subscribers as they come in. And depending on uh, how the supply is lasting, sometimes I'll send the previous card too if I have enough of them. Um, so, that's a little inside information about how to get these postcards. I'm also really pleased to see that uh, some of our subscribers at the left hand. Moths and Fireflies Cabinet Levels have received their After the Hunt posters, recreations of Bogart's iconic masterpiece. Uh, hope you are enjoying them. Uh, if you are not a subscriber to our Patreon, uh, why don't you become one? You can go to marksbrothersCouncilpodcast.com Council and click the Patreon button, or you can go to patreon.com slash Brothers Council Podcast and for as little as three dollars a month you can get access to our bonus segments which are released every month along with the proper episode um, and from six dollars a month and up you get the postcards and then at the higher levels the poster and other great gifts um it's going really nicely i believe at last count we were at 94 uh, patreon subscribers which is very good this early on. Uh, we will get to 100 soon, I suppose, and if you are the 100th Patreon subscriber, then there will be 99 subscribers ahead of you.
1: Hey, what would happen if you put that uh, Harpo photo on, on a postcard and sent it out? What do you think <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, reaction would be?
0: I think uh, most of the people who would receive it have already seen it, as much as they would probably appreciate a <laughs> He held his breath for a moment. Hard copy, I think. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's probably not not ours to share in that uh, <laughs> in that way. Uh, but it would certainly be surprising.
1: Maybe in an envelope. Maybe in a plain brown wrapper. You know, with a hole cut out so you could see his face, like John and Yoko on the on the wedding album. <laughs> uh, I, I suppose if
0: some guest artist chose to uh, submit some kind of riff on that image, there's. It's always possible. <laughs> I'm thinking sick Roman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess there was a time when obscenity laws would have prevented such a thing from crossing state lines, but uh, that's no longer the case, although there have been some rather troubling stories about uh, some more puritanical American school districts um, recently restricting images of Michelangelo's David, for example, um, and I guess Mm -hmm. uh, Harpo's David would get the same treatment. (laughs) Uh, Oh, and and we might as well say, too, um, every Patreon subscriber at all four levels gets access to the bonus segments, uh, which are released every month, and uh, they've been going over very well so far, and uh, this episode is no exception. If you are a Patreon subscriber, when you're done listening to us here, head over to the Patreon page to hear us take on another question and address one of my favorite Pieces of analytical writing about the Marx brothers, written by Matthew, um, over on our Patreon page every month. And yes, if you become a subscriber, you get access to all the past bonus segments too. And now Bob Gasell will choose our closing
1: music. Well, I think it's obvious what we got to end with uh, uh, this month.
3: My dear i
0: Brothers
2: Council Podcast is produced by Bob Gassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me Groucho are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarksBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx
3: Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!